No, oh, no. this is this is from the chicken. Yeah, no, no problem. I'm not going to deal with that. You're listening to Widowed AF with Rosie Gilmoss and Lucinda Boast. We've invited some members of the world's most exclusive club to bravely share their stories. Join us for some honest conversations about living a different life, the crushing lows, the surprising highs, and everything in between. Please note this is a podcast about death. Carefully read the episode descriptions and be kind to yourself. But for now, welcome to our podcast. Let's Let's begin. Hello and welcome back to Widowed AF. I'm Rosie Gilmoss and I am delighted to tell you that back with me today is Lucinda Boast. Welcome back, Lulu. Thank you. It's so good to be back. We've missed you. I'm quite annoyed by how many people have reached out to me saying they miss you, which is rude. I don't know. I'd get quite the same response if I'd... <laughs> I know people, people keep asking me as well. I was like, people are going to think I've kicked her off. So just for those of you who don't know, Lou has spent, so you spent a week in hospital, didn't you, with a gallbladder infection. And subsequently, you are applying for roles on The Simpsons, aren't you? Because you're quite yellow. <laughs> Jaundice is not funny. Oh. I'm sorry. Jaundice is not funny. No, I know. But you've got to laugh, haven't you, really? I mean, then, yeah, I had that awful week in hospital and I did the classic thing of it ignoring the immense pain I was in until a friend basically threatened to come down the A14 and frog march me into hospital. So I'm so glad I did. But ever since then, anyone that's had gallbladder or gallstone pain will know that it doesn't go away. It just comes back again and again and again. So anytime I've wanted to do anything with the podcast or anything, really, it's it's reared its ugly head. So The thing is, Lou, as you know, and so many of our listeners know, that when you are a solo parent, particularly, which you are, the buck stops with you. So you do have to prioritise the essentials, which are going to work and looking after your daughter. And much as we love the podcast, you know, sometimes that is going to have to take a back seat to the realities of, of life. And you know, that's the beauty of doing it together, isn't it? That we, we can step in for each other. Um, and of course, you know, lovely John has been a worthy co-host in your absence. So I did wonder if he was after your seat permanently for a while there, Lou. Oh, he's, he's brilliant. He's brilliant, isn't he? And, and I think actually, particularly if we have men coming on the podcast, I think his his input is actually really valuable. So I think we may continue to, to rope him in occasionally. So you'll probably hear his voice again, guys. Definitely. It's, it's lovely to have been able to have a break. But anyway, that's enough of that. Back, back to work. Oh, God, that back to work, working on episode song is still in my head. Guys, I'm so sorry that I did that to you. If you haven't seen it, it took me about three days to do, including one full mental breakdown when I let John do the photographs. Because has anyone ever let a man take photographs of you before? It never ends well, does it? So if you haven't seen it, please do have a look at it because quite frankly, I'll work my backside off on it. Anyway, let's get back to the matter in hand. We had the wonderful Nikki Outlaw on on Monday and what a story. So I sat in on the interview, Lou, you heard it back for the first time after the interview. I'd love to hear your take on it, mate. Gosh, John and Rose actually asked me to to listen to it again. I'd listened to it once, but you asked me to listen to it again and pick out some highlights and I ended up filling a whole page with with stuff because honestly, um, what a powerful story! Not only that, but loads of parallels for me in the way that Nikki dealt had to deal with the police and coroner and that initial kind of worry about press intrusion mm. and social media intrusion, which are things that most people don't ever have to think about, and the danger of her finding out what had happened to her husband through other means. Mm. Before, you know, 
she actually did send me a photo. I didn't use it on social media because it really wasn't appropriate, but sadly it is out in public domain. And it was a picture of her husband lying on the road in the motorbike. And oh my goodness, you know, the imag- imagine to be- see that on the front page of your local paper and see it spread out. And and the way she talks about, you know, the implications had he been, had it gone to, it was an open coroner's court, wasn't it? You know, and had they said that he'd had cocaine in his system. And how the media would have turned. And, you know, whilst, you know, many members of the media are very good and moral people, my, my dad was a very successful journalist and he was always very good at his job and very kind. But we now, the, the gutter press, they would have had an, they'd have made a meal out of her. I, there was a piece on the local, because she lives in Kent, as do I, and there was a piece, Kent Online, last week, and a, a mother had been caught driving with, I think, I, from what I can understand, a fairly low level of cannabis in her system. But the comments on the article, I mean, she was, you know, quite rightly so. She'd had her license taken off her. But the comments, the vitriol, the her children should be taken off her. Oh, my goodness. I mean, God, you know, how many of these people can put their hand on the heart and say they haven't driven the next day with a bit of booze in the system? And I'm not condoning it. But what I'm saying is it's very easy to be very moral and very cruel from behind a keyboard. And the thought of that level of venom and vitriol being directed at one of our tribe, it makes my blood go cold because like we... That he didn't ask to be here and to be under attack. It just seems like a, another layer of cruelty. I, I realise I'm kind of you know projecting something that didn't happen because obviously, you know, he wasn't. She managed to disprove this, but I, I was, you know, I had a little bit of press intrusion when Ben died because it was a, you know, it was an interesting story. Let's let's be honest. You know, young handsome man dies, leaving wife and three lovely children. It's you know, it's a story. It's and it was an open uh, coroner's court, but. How about you? I, I don't think I've ever asked you whether John's was open or closed. I was really lucky with John's, actually, because my immediate worry was that, you know, I knew that the inquest was coming and the coroner had warned me that it was more than likely to be an open inquest. It's only in very specific circumstances that you can request for it to be closed. Mm. And you really, really have to fight for that. And I was told right from the outset that wasn't going to be likely for me. So there was always the threat of these awful, salacious details getting into the press. But luckily, by the time the inquest came around, which was a year and a half after John's death, no no press attended and the police received no calls from the press to follow up. They did an initial article when John's vehicle was taken off the woman's property and you could see the vehicle being loaded onto a police low loader, but that was it. So I got away lightly, really. But I remember at the time I was on Facebook and I saw Lad Bible had the story of a guy that had gone on his stag do and had visited a brothel and died at the brothel. And I remember because it's Lad Bible and I was reading all the comments underneath from people saying, oh, at least he went out with a bang. Yeah. And I I was thinking this is going to happen with John. Oh my God, I've got all cold thinking about that because, <clears throat> you know, the way you talk about, you know, I had to bring it back up again, but the way he was found, I mean, yeah. that, you know, that is a front page story waiting to happen, isn't it? Because that shit sells and with no regard for the, his widow and his daughter. I'm so lucky that didn't happen to you because that would have been, I think the level of trauma that would have added to you would have been... Un- Can you imagine? I mean, I, f- I honestly do feel so lucky and, I, and you know, through this podcast, I'm now able to tell the story in my own way. Yeah, it's your truth. And thank goodness for that. You know, I didn't have any of that media intrusion. I mean, Nikki, I'm a journalist in their blooming garden. I know, I know. Isn't that naughty? 
it's just horrendous. I know when, obviously, relating back to my own experience, which you know, it's the only thing we can really do because it's we are, I think the technical term is experts by experience, Lucinda. And, and you know, the press were, were pounding me. They were they got my number. They got my Facebook. And in the end, I did have to say, look, you have to stop this. This is, you can't do this to me. And and to be fair, they did stop. And I had a friend who was a journalist and she wrote the article with my input in the end, which gave me a little bit of autonomy over it, which I needed. You know, I, I, I do write myself. So I, I wanted to have some sort of say in what, what was written. But even then I read it back and I'm like, what the hell did I say that for? Because I was about three days into this bloody journey being asked to basically write a biography of my husband. And oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But, you know, the press did turn up at the inquest uh, for Ben because there was a little bit of controversy over the skipper of the boat. There had been three deaths on the same boat. I can't really go into too much detail because it's no longer a legal issue, but, the, you know, the, the skipper was, there was no fault to be found. It was um, ruled as misadventure. So but at the time, you know, there was this, you know, the, there was the potential for quite a juicy story, but it, as it happened, it, it like most things, it dissipated. And I, in my in my own you know, it's a play devil's advocate. I courted the press a little bit myself because I did a marathon for charity. I like to drop that into almost every episode. So if you're not aware of this, now you are. And <laughs> it's the only time I've ever done anything physical <laughs> in my life. And I, and I, you know, they were very good and they, they promoted it and they, they raised quite a lot of money. So it goes both ways, which we, we were aware of. And, you know, I've got very close links to the press, but unfortunately there are some members of any I, area of society that don't have goodness at, at heart. So anyone no absolutely we're very vulnerable in those early days too aren't we for you know and and also just the amount of time going back to like you went through that court case with the skipper on the boat and then nikki went through this whole process and what's happening to people's grief yeah well while this is happening i'm you know we have to kind of effectively put it on hold yeah yeah absolutely and, and to put this into context when i got the final coroner's verdict I was already in a relationship with John. That's how long it had been. Like my grief was in a very different place. It hadn't gone, but I was able to live with it. Or as we know, I've still done a bit of processing <laughs> recently. But, you know, that's how long it took. It took it took over two years to get to the point where I knew formally how my husband had died. I mean, it's insane. And we actually, we've had a couple of people reach out to us off the back of this, haven't we? I know you've been in communication with a couple of them. So do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, we've had all sorts of comments from people to say, wow, this resonated. I went through similar, you know, procedures with the coroner. We had Julie Stonehouse, who we've interviewed on this podcast. Yeah, but the story of the repatriation of her husband Fraser's body from Scotland to England and all the processes that that involved between the procurator fiscal in Scotland and the coroner in England. Procurator (laughs) <laughs> sorry julie sorry julie. Oh my sorry oh my god sorry julie at least we at least we know that julie's got the same dark sense of humor sorry julie she absolutely <laughs> has but julie help us out with that will you <laughs> and actually on things that, we have to go through honestly on that note i think I'm, we could now is the opportune moment to drop in the clip that julie she's left she's used the voice note button people and so here's here's a little clip from julie just giving you her take on this Hello, it's Julie. I appeared on as a guest on a previous episode of the podcast and I know I spoke briefly about some issues that we'd had with the coroner. After hearing Nikki's story this week, I wanted to kind of make contact and, and tell you a bit more about our experience. 
because we'd only been living in Scotland a short while when Fraser died, we thought it was best to bring him back to England for the funeral. So he was, he was repatriated. He was picked up from hospital in Inverness and brought back to the funeral director here in England. The procurator fiscal in Scotland had had no issues with his identification. So it all seemed straightforward. And we booked his funeral for the 21st of October, let everybody know, put the announcements in the paper, ordered the flowers, all the stuff you do. Three days before the funeral, I had a call from the funeral director to say the English coroner wasn't happy with his identification. And they took him back into their custody, moving him from the chapel of rest back to one of the local hospitals. The funeral director had had admitted to send an important piece of paperwork to the coroner and book the funeral without the coroner's authorisation. The coroner phoned me and asked if Fraser had any identifying features, like any tattoos. He didn't. And I told him he had a mark on his ear, but they said that wasn't viable. Um, I also told him about the crown on his front tooth, but they said that wasn't viable either. Basically, his injuries were too severe to identify him visually or dentally. And the only thing that they could do at this point was DNA testing, swab his mum for the match. And this could take up to three and a half weeks. There was no way of expediting it, no way of having him present for his funeral, no way of postponing the funeral. We had to have a service at the crematorium with no coffin. We had a large photo of him and his electric guitar on a stand where his coffin should have been. We finally got the go-ahead from the coroner on the 7th of November and we booked the actual funeral for exactly a month after the original one, 21st November. He was then moved from the hospital to a different chapel of rest and six weeks after he died, me and his were finally able to spend some time with his closed casket to kind of make that connection that we hadn't been able to before. But this was only after the funeral director had asked for some time to prepare him as there was apparently a smell as so much time had passed. He said there was something that he could put in the coffin to mask it. Of course, this all added a, an extra layer of an extra layer to the trauma and gave me and his some mental images that still stick with us now. I think if the coroner and the funeral director had have had better communication, we could probably have avoided quite a lot of that. But anyway, thanks a lot. I'll see you later. Bye. Wow, bloody hell, talk about piling on a load of extra administrative and emotional stress onto somebody in the middle of grieving, right? No, where is the space for Mm. this person's grief, you know? And there are so many parallels between Julie and Nikki in that, you know, they had all these processes that they had to go through and follow before they could even start to grieve. And things like PTSD then come into play, don't they? Because... Grief doesn't go away. You know, we can't push it away or outrun it. It will catch up with us eventually. It's, we talk quite a lot, and several of our guests have talked about this idea of grief admin and deathmin, as we call it. And there's so much of it. And I genuinely think, I don't know, I've got, I'm torn in whether sometimes a little buffer between you and the grief in the early days is helpful. I think sometimes it can be. Well, again, I'm wagging on about my drinking, but I, I beat myself up a lot about it when I got into recovery. And now I look back and, and actually my therapist has said to me, um, you needed something between you and that pain. Like you, it was too much. You, you couldn't have taken that at the time. And I sort of understand that a bit now. And I think keeping busy the, and the, the admin, although it's awful and it's soul destroying and it's relentless. And believe me, I still, I've moved house and I still sometimes get things addressed to my husband, my dead one. And it it never ends. It feels like it never, ever ends. And I know there is there are protocols on the government website will tell us once and things like this, but if you have an unusual circumstance, i.e. no body, they don't work. They don't work. So I don't know whether we have any actual advice for anybody going through it. So I'm going to put a link to there's a coroner support page. But essentially, I think sharing the experience is talking about it, reaching out to other people, 
I, I know it's difficult and, and it feels really scary, but there is there are people out there that will have gone through it not exactly the same as you, then something similar. And it just really it helps to know you're not alone, doesn't it? It really does. It's a unique and terrifying experience, you know, when you're having to basically deal with the local authority and talking in a very sanitary way about something very unsavoury and shocking and that you're still trying to process, but it's their everyday job. So, yeah, the coroner's coroner's court support service is a charitable organisation that, yeah, it's definitely worth getting in touch with. Well, Abby, that death min, you talking about all of the admin that we have to deal and the fact that it's ongoing. Yeah. It, it really is. I mean, I still have to deal with stuff now. Yeah. Rosie knows about this, but I had to do some paperwork regarding one of my husband's pensions and recently. And they said to me, they read out the date of his death from the death certificate that I provided them. And it said 2017 and John died in 2016. And I sort of, I said to them, that can't, that's not right. You know, you're, you're obviously misreading it. And then I got a copy of it myself and sure enough, it said the wrong year. How on earth did I get that wrong or or did I not spot that well, in I, those early days? I'm, I'm going to say, how did they get that wrong though? Not you, because that wasn't actually your job to put the death date on the death certificate. That was their job. It's a cleric, yeah. You, it's just a clerical error. Someone just typed the wrong, because it's on their system as the correct date. But these things do happen. Human error happens. Not type, But don't blame yourself for missing it because, you know, you kind of assume that the date on the death certificate is going to be right. In actual fact, I'm going to find out if it's done right. Well, that's but the thing. We trust these institutions, don't we, to get things right, well, for goodness sake. Well, you know? I mean, let's talk drug testing after an accident. Yeah. I mean, God, she had the, the grit and the determination. And I guess the, the, the love and the trust in who her husband was that she, you know, she talks about this glimmer of doubt that she had that he wasn't who she thought he was. Obviously, this you, you, she who found out that your husband wasn't who he thought he was, and that is, you know, agonising. And I know, like Nikki, I you do you question, don't you? Because Ben disappeared, I suppose for a brief second, I couldn't find his passport when the police came. Like only for like five minutes, because you know, <laughs> who, who knows where my passport is, right? And there was this tiny flicker of doubt that went through my head of what if he's left us? What if he's, what if he's left us? Of course. I still feel quite guilty for that thought. And hearing Nikki say that she, that flicker of doubt, like, could he? Could he have been a secret cocaine user? Could he? Because in that moment, anything could be possible because the impossible has just happened. So anything that you thought was real and true and good can cease to believe, cease to exist. Because that's absolutely. And the police, you know, bless their hearts, are so overstretched that I know the detective in John's case sat there and said I was in pure disbelief that he had any amount of drugs in his system because John didn't smoke, he didn't drink too much, he hated feeling out of control. So, you know, to this day, I refuse to believe that he chose to take heroin. But the police sat there and said to me, well, lots of people you pass in the street every day are heroin addicts and, and you wouldn't know. And they, I could just tell they just wanted this case put to bed. And just accept the fact that my husband had hair on his bo- in his body because they didn't have the time to go rake back over the details, re-examine the blood samples. They just wanted it done. Yeah. And it, it's so sad because these are people's lives. And I don't you know, even the person that has died, you know, it's their reputation, but it's also, it's it's what is left behind and how they're remembered. And it, it is important, isn't it? It really is important. And we talk, you know, in schools and things about digital footprint, and of course, anything that goes out into the press and social media, it's, it's a help there, isn't it? So, um, you know, 
you know, these kind of intrusive images that we have in our head. In some cases, people are seeing these intrusive images played out in the media, and that must be incredibly difficult. I know my mum had, as I've talked a lot about how my amazing parents came and moved in with me when Ben died, and mum had walked into the town that I lived in, and outside the newsagents, they had the A-frame boards, and the headline was a picture of Ben. And and my mum said at that point, she just sank to the floor in, in sobs because she'd been holding her shit together for me. But in that moment, that intrusive image, you know, that re- the reality that her daughter's husband had died was projected into her with a kind of out of the blue. So yeah, it, it is very difficult grieving anybody and grieving anybody in a, in a traumatic and a, and a shocking loss that, that has press interest. It does. It really does increase the trauma. I'm going to address the elephant in the room as well. Scuba diving. <laughs> what? Guys, I wish you could have seen my face when uh, we, you know, Nikki and I are having a nice chat and, and she talks about these things that she's done. I mean, the, her, John said, we're listening back, his overarching thing was, you go, girl, at the end. You know, the way that she's just gone, yeah, fuck it, I'm going to go to Bali, I'm going to sell my house, I'm going to move up north. And then she went and dropped the scuba diving bomb and I'm just going, <gasps> sort of hyperventilating. Oh. But of course, her husband died in a motorbike accident. My dad still rides a motorbike in his 70s. You cannot avoid death. You can't. So you got to just grab life by the balls until death gets you, I guess, haven't you? Yeah, just keywords are always going to be triggering, aren't they? So if, when I was I was doing a class at the, at the gym once and we got on some of open water swimming, you know, as, as, as ladies do at the end of a, a class. And the instructor started talking about some lakes near me. And oh God bless her, she was so mortified afterwards, but she... She's quite, oh, yeah, I don't like swimming over like the wrecks or anything like that because I've just got a feeling there might be a body down there. And I just went, like, I just went, stop! And just sort of ran into the cupboard and started crying like an absolute bellend. But, and she, of course, had no clue and was absolutely devastated that she would have upset me like this. And, and of course, it's not her fault, but like, you know, people would never have been here think, oh, well, I can't talk about that because that lady might, her husband might be at the bottom of the sea, you know. It, I suppose you have to get used to the smacks in the face. And I often talk to John about cancer because cancer is everywhere. We've got the stand up to cancer. It's on Bake Off. And I said to him, does that help or hinder? And he said, in a way, desensitize. So the uniqueness of our husband's deaths mean that we are not regularly confronted with imagery to it. I, I still can't walk past a diver. I can't watch a drowning scene on the TV. You know, there are things that I will never be able to do. And the children are very aware that they will never be allowed to scuba dive. <laughs> I'm, I do allow them to swim. But that's that's my own, you know, fears. And I, I think we, we are understandably going to be left with, with some fears, aren't we? We are. And although we do desensitise over time, that's really true. Some days the sensitivity is more raw than others. Yeah. So, for instance, that lady might have caught you on a particularly bad day. Yeah. Or it might have been a great day and and then that trigger pops up and it just changes everything and everything just spins on a dime, doesn't it? You know, we know what that feels like. Yeah, And we're both diagnosed with PTSD, so it is going to happen. We are going to get these, I guess, these sort of flashback images that, that, that pull us down to our knees occasionally. And that that is part of, I do, here we go, I'm getting my, my hippie on, right? I, I genuinely think that part of the healing is accepting that you are not the same, that you've changed immeasurably, that your life has changed immeasurably and, you know, things will never be the same again. And I think once you can let go of that idea and embrace the fact that, yes, it won't be the same, but there's a different path for you and it can be a wonderful and beautiful and fast, fantastic path, it just isn't the same. 
And I think once you get to that level of acceptance, it's easier is probably not the right word, but it's less uh, it's less horrific. Shall we say that? It really is. And uh, along the way, you can learn. I'm not sounding like my therapist now. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Coping strategies and grounding techniques. And, you know, if you'd have told me in the early days, if you'd have thrown the term grounding (laughs) technique, I'd have slapped you. I'm still struggling with the fact I'm meditating and doing yoga, to be honest with you. Let's not get too carried away. Do you know what, though? (laughs) Anything that works. And it's, you know, we've moved on from the booth. We've realised that didn't help us. Very annoying. Basically, if it's too easy, (laughs) it's too easy. That's it. But everything we're doing now is is learning and it's helping us. So it is. And on that note, I'm off to take. We're still in Easter holidays as as record here. So I'm off to go to a to teeny boppers with my youngest daughter today. So I'll make sure I take the ear loops for that one. Living the dream. Living the dream, my friend. It's all glamour this for podcast life. Isn't it? Right, we will be back with you on Monday with another wonderful episode. This one is with a lady called Laura Malin, and she has got a fascinating story to tell, as they all do. And I very much hope you will join us. And Lulu, it's been fabulous to have you back. I've loved, I've loved it, and I look forward to seeing you again next Friday. Thank you. But Thanks so much for your support, everybody. Take too. care, everybody. Lots of love. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening today. We'll be back with you soon for more from the front line of loss. But for now, as you were.